Sydney, that was beautiful. Did, did you write that? That was beautiful. I, I look over there and there's no music, so I'm like, she's not looking at anything. She's just playing. Thank you, Sandy. Great job. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The title of the message is Love Never Fails. So I want to talk to you this morning about love. And I know somebody out there saying, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. The word occurs 215 times in the New Testament, but it occurs 13 times in this chapter. Most people refer to this as the love chapter, and at least a portion of this chapter is read at a lot of weddings because it describes love. I don't know what that word says to you. In fact, the word we're going to look at this morning is really an unnatural, really supernatural love. I kind of struggled with the word love growing up. My parents loved me. I knew my dad loved me, but uh, I don't remember him saying it a lot when I was young. Now, as, as I got older, I remember after I got married, it was something we would say, I love you, and he would say, I love you. But I remember playing a game at night. I'd go, Dad, you don't love me anymore, do you? Well, of course I do, son. Go to bed. Say, I love you. I remember one night I said, Dad, you don't love me anymore, do you? He said, you're right, I don't. He said, I don't love you any less either. Go to bed. <laughs> and so when it came time to tell that special someone in my life that I love them, that was hard for me. Now, I know some of you kind of throw the word around a little too easily. You know, I, I've heard you on the telephone. I love you. I love you too. I, no, I love you more. You know, back in my day when your parents said, all right, hang up the phone. Last thing you do is, all right, I love you. Good night. Bye. I'll talk to you later. You still there? <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore, right? Your parents tell you, get off the phone at night, and you're like, all right, I got to go. Love you. They didn't say anything about texting. You know, so, so you're still communicating after the lights are out. So when it came time to tell that special someone was my freshman year in college, I had dated this girl for years through high school. We grew up together. Known her since I was five years old. We started dating again over Christmas break, and I thought she was going to a different school than I was, and I thought, I, I want her to know how I feel about her. So I borrowed a bunch of money from my dad to take her to this really nice place to eat. You know what that means when you borrow money from your parents, right? I still, I still owe my parents. You know, if, if they went back and, like, did the math on the interest, I, I could never pay it off. But so we went to this really nice place to eat, and I'm working up my nerve, right, to say, I love you. And so we're kind of, I like to see people laugh, so I'm telling jokes and all that. And she said something that totally ruined the whole evening. She said, Robert, you're so funny. I hope someday I get to meet your children. I'm thinking, meet them? <laughs> I was kind of planning on you having my children. I didn't know how to recover from that. I'm just like, yeah, I hope you get to meet them too. So I went back off to college. She went back off to college and... It got so bad that I, we were on the quarter system back when I was coming up. Her school was on the semester system. We were on the quarter system. I was talking to her so much on the phone. This is before cell phones. I know it's hard to believe. I was actually talking to her on a phone that was hooked to the wall. <laughs> and we were running out these phone bills. I had to sell my math textbook to pay my phone bill so I could take my exam. That's how bad I had it. I found a friend of mine that had a... a a brother that was in school where she was, and I thought, well, let's go, let's take a road trip, go up and visit, you know. So we went up there, and I remember it's freezing cold. I guess this was February now. 
My whole purpose of this trip is I'm going to tell this girl I love her. So we're playing backgammon. I remember we were watching like ACC basketball. We're playing backgammon. And I'm like, you want to go for a walk? I mean, it was freezing cold outside. I mean, it was Minnesota cold. You know what I'm saying? She should have said, no, I don't want to go for a walk. She said, sure. So we start walking around this block, and I'm working up the nerve. And I'm, I'm like, you know, I've got to hurry up and do this before she dies of hypothermia or something. So we get back to this little walk up, back up to the apartment, and I said, stop. I said, I need to tell you something. She looked up at me. She said, yeah. I said, here it is, the lump in the throat. I'm, I'm nervous. I just looked at her and said, you're special. <laughs> she said, you're special too, and we went back inside. It's not until that summer that I finally got up the nerve. I mean, it was to the point of, I don't even care what she says. If, if I say I love you, and she's like, that's nice. I didn't care at this point. I finally told her I love her. And the good news is she said she loved me. And the better news is we've been married for 31 years. She's met all four of my children. So why do we struggle with that, that word? Either we take it too lightly or it's such a big deal we're scared to say it. And that's kind of where Paul gets to in this passage. In fact, a lot of scholars have trouble because in chapter 12, Paul's been talking about spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts again, and he inserts chapter 13. Keep in mind, when 1 Corinthians was written, there weren't chapters, all right? It was just a letter he wrote. In fact, a lot of it was responding to a letter he had gotten from them. And so he doesn't break this up. It's just right in the middle of his teaching on spiritual gifts. He says, wait a minute, you need to understand something. If you're not motivated by love, your spiritual gift is going to be insignificant. Let's read this first few verses. I'm going to read through verse 7 of chapter 13. Here's Paul. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, yet I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. First thing I want you to see this morning, just from this passage, is that love is the priority. Yes, he's been teaching on spiritual gifts, but he says, you know what, I've been talking to you about the gift of tongues, he said, you know what, if I speak with the tongue of men or even of angels, which is kind of a foreign way of, of, if he's talking about the gift of tongues, it's really not described that way anywhere else. If I speak with some unknown language or if I speak any language, Paul's saying, and I have, do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The word that he uses for love here is the word we know is agape. And in our, our language, part of the problem with the word love we have is we just got one word. I love French fries. You know, 
I love my favorite sports teams. I love my dog. I love to play golf. I love my family. I love God. Now, do we mean the same thing by all of those words? No. Do I love God more than French fries? Yes. And so in the Greek culture, they had more words for love than that. They had loves that referred to like brotherly love. They had love that referred to like romantic love that a man and a woman would have for each other when they're married. They also had a love that was an, an unnatural love. In fact, it was a word rarely used in Greek literature. And yet it's used a bunch in the New Testament. And that's the word agape. Agape means unconditional love. It means love without strings attached. It, it means this. It means that the person that is doing the loving doesn't do it based on whether the person they're loving deserves it or not. In fact, it's interesting to know, like in Romans 5, 8, Paul writes, For God demonstrated his agape for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God proved his love. 1 John chapter 4, 16, just write this down. I don't have it on the screen for you, but 1 John 4, 16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, God is love. And the one who abides in him, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. So when you hear about agape love, I want you to think about 1 John 4, 16. God is love. It's not something you make. It is God. It's, it's one of the important parts of his character. It's unnatural to human nature. So, so really the truth is, if I'm going to love the way... Uh, that God wants me to love, if I'm going to love the way Paul's talking about, it's going to have to be because God's in me. Because left alone, I won't love this way. I'll love the other ways. I'll love with brotherly love, and, or I'll love with romantic love. I'll, I'll love if the person that is the object of my love is doing what I want them to do. If they're jumping through the right hoops, or if they're dancing when I pull the string, that's the kind of love humans have without God. And so he's talking about something way more than that. In fact, he said, you know what? I could have this spiritual gift that the Corinthians highly coveted, the gift of speaking in, in other languages. And he said, if I have that, I've just become this noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. He uses two words, but the root of both of them, I mean, we've got a cymbal back here, but it really has the root of something that is hollow, that when it's hit, it may make a good noise, it may not. But the truth is, inside it's hollow. So if I'm speaking all these words, whether I'm preaching that you can understand or I'm speaking in some utterance you can't understand, if love is not the motivation behind it, I'm just making a lot of noise. Now, I know some of you think, well, that's what preachers do anyway. <laughs> I don't know if y'all ever watch uh, you know, Charlie Brown, where when the adults speak, it's just like, wah, 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 wah. I wonder sometimes, you know, <laughs> I think when I was a teenager, that's kind of what the preacher, I just kind of could tune him out. Well, listen. Paul is saying, listen, regardless of what spiritual gift you've been given, we talked about last week, if the motivation, if the heart behind it is not love, you're just loud. You're just making a lot of noise. And Paul goes on to say, you know, speaking of other gifts, if, if, if I prophesy, if I have this gift of prophecies, if I know all mysteries, literally if I've had divine revelation, or if I have all knowledge, if I know everything that the world could possibly know, even if I had the faith to remove mountains, if I had that depth of faith, and yet I don't have love, I am nothing. 
first one he talked about is, I'm just making a lot of noise. This is just, I'm nothing. That amounts to nothing. Now, again, he, he's stepping on some toes here in the Corinthian culture because he's already written to them in chapter 12. They were so in love with their gift. And they were desired, they were jealous of each other's gifts, and they were real proud if they had the gift, especially of tongues. And he said, if I knew all those things, I'm nothing. If I had the faith to remove mountains, if I had that kind of faith, is it possible to have that kind of faith and yet be empty inside? Yeah, one of the best examples is Jonah. Go back to Jonah. Did Jonah have faith? Do you know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because he believed God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so he tried to flee to Tarshish. He ends up having to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to preach to those people. Why? Because he hates them. He doesn't love them. He hates them. He finally preaches anyway. The whole town, Nineveh, repents from the king down. They even put sackcloth on their animals to show how repentant they were. You know what, what Jonah does? He goes and sits under a tree and just like, I wish I was dead. God, I knew you were going to do this. So these people have repented from all their evil deeds that you're mad about, and you're mad at God. But yeah, it's possible to have faith, even the kind of faith that could say to that mountain, go over there. And yet if there's not love behind it, it profits you nothing, you are nothing. He said, even if I surrendered my body to be burned, even if, and in, in generations after this, it would be a big deal for Christians to be burned at the stake. Paul's saying, even if I sacrificed my body, and yet love was not the motivation behind it, there's no profit to that. And he's already talked about in verse chapter 3, that if you build with gold, silver, precious stones, there's reward. But Paul says, you know what? If you try to do all these spiritual things, if you try to look religious... And yet inside is not a heart of love. You're nothing. It profits you nothing. There's not a reward for that. So then what is love? Let's get to this next section where I've entitled it love is a verb. And you know what? What Paul is really doing is this is the best I could do. It's almost like Paul is holding up this precious gem called love. And he's just, he's just searching it over. In case you're wondering, in the back, I got this out of the nursery. But if he held up this gem and the light could reflect on it, and, you know, every side you looked at, you just got a different color. That's what Paul does. He lifts up love, and he says, let's, let's look at this for a minute. And so what I want you to do is ask this question. If you're, if you're a child of God, if you know you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, why don't you ask yourself this question. What he's about to describe, just say, God, show me if that's what's true about me. In fact, Paul's going to say, here's some things love is not. We're going to look at them first. Here's some things that love is. So as Paul does the gemstone, I want you to let God do that in your life right now. In fact, it's interesting. There's more things he says love is not than he says love is. There's a bunch of them. I won't, I won't take a lot of time on each one. There's a few I want to really talk about. But I want you to know this. Love is not fully love if it doesn't act. Love is a verb. And these 15 things he's going to give us in this section are all verbs. They're all action words. First he says not. Love is not jealous. 
Literally to be hot with feelings towards something. Here's the way jealousy looks like in humans. Either two things. Either somebody's got something you wish you had, and so you're jealous of it. Or somebody's got something, and it's not so much that you want it. You're just mad they got it. They didn't deserve that. They didn't deserve that promotion. They didn't deserve that new car, that house, whatever. They don't deserve that. That's jealousy. Now, what about in the Old Testament when it says God's a jealous God? What's the difference? For humans, we're jealous of stuff we don't have. Here's the difference for God. God's jealous for stuff he does have. God's jealous for you. God's jealous for himself, his character, his holiness. God's not looking at anything and saying, I'm jealous. I wish I had that because he's got everything. So love is not jealous. So teenagers, girls, if you're dating some loser, I mean some guy that is just jealous and he's saying he loves you, he's not demonstrating it by his jealousy. And guys, it works the other way. If you're dating some girl that your relationship is so caught up in jealousy, you can't go anywhere without her getting ticked off that you talked to this person or spent time with that person. Love's not jealous. Not the kind that God gives us. Love's not jealous. Love also doesn't brag, literally to, to boast, to talk conceitedly. Jealousy is wishing that somebody that you had what somebody else had. Here's what bragging is. Bragging is making wanting everybody else to be jealous of what you got. Look at me. I hope you're jealous. That's bragging. Love also is not arrogant. The literal meaning of the word arrogant has a sense of blowing. You're just full of hot air. You're just a windbag. You're just trying to puff yourself up to gain the attention and notoriety of others. And the Corinthians had done it. Paul, back in chapter 4, says, you know what? You act like you've already arrived. I wish you had already arrived so that we could enjoy some of that with you. But they hadn't already arrived. In fact, probably the best illustration of not being arrogant is John the Baptist. When his followers came to him and said, this Jesus that you baptized, he's getting more fame than you are getting. More people are following him now. People used to follow you, but now that he's come, more people are following him. Do you remember what he said in John 3.30? He said, he must increase. I must decrease. That's the epitome of not being arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Literally shapeless or inelegant. The disciples, I mean, excuse me, the Corinthians, a couple of chapters earlier, in talking about the Lord's Supper, you know what they were doing? The rich people were coming in with their food, not sharing it with anybody else. In fact, apparently getting drunk at church while the poor people were starving and hungry. That is acting unbecomingly. So Paul's saying love, you, you can't say that that's a love feast you're having. That's a self-feast. Love does not seek its own. When you come to worship God, it's all about Him. It's not about you. It doesn't seek its own. It's not preoccupied with your own stuff. Jesus demonstrated this. Philippians chapter 2. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Didn't seek His own, what He deserved emptied himself and became obedient even to the point of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death. Love's not provoked. 
literally to exasperate or arouse to anger. Love does not take into account wrong suffering. This is a bookkeeping term that means love doesn't keep an inventory when, when people do stuff to you. That you're not keeping an inventory so that you can stay mad at them or so that at the opportune moment you can get revenge. <laughs> Love's not does not rejoice in unrighteousness. You know where I see this most often lived out in the church? It's through gossip. Why is it that some people love pouncing on the sin of other people and making sure everybody knows about it? Love doesn't rejoice in that. The word rejoice means to be cheerful or happy. Don't get happy when somebody else is sinning. Now, the motivation behind that is when they look bad, it makes me look better, right? That's not love. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. See, the fact is, sin is an affront to a holy God. It ought to break our hearts. It shouldn't make us happy. So, that's what love is not. Now, let's look at the other side. What is love? First, love is patient. Literally, long-spirited or long-tempered. It's forbearing. Almost always when this word is used in Scripture, it's talking about how we treat people. Love is patient with people. And let me tell you, this was not a virtue in the Greek culture. Even Aristotle taught in the Greek culture that you waited for revenge and to avenge when somebody did something wrong to you. You weren't patient with them. Love is also kind. Related to patient, but love is kind. It really means to show oneself useful or to act benevolently benevolently in fact it's the same word in matthew eleven thirty, when jesus says come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and i'll give you rest for take my yoke upon you because it is easy same word kind in fact in romans romans chapter 2 verse 4 says or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of god leads you to repentance so love is kind. Love rejoices with the truth. A little bit fuller word, but we, we, in, the, in the negative we saw love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices with the truth. Let me meddle a little bit here. I hear a lot among Christians these days, whether it's denominations or churches or whatever, that we, we've just got to show love to people so we will not confront sin. You're not loving people when you don't tell them the truth. That is not an example of love. And the problem I have is the church in America has either become silent on some doctrinal issues or just plain wrong. I want to say to some of these people, have you read the Bible? It's not your opinion. It's what God says. In fact, Proverbs says, better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Listen, if you think that somehow you're going to love people through error, no, what they're coming to is a lie. I think if we hold up the truth of God, the truth of God's Word, here's what the Bible says and there's a reason for it, then we're truly loving people. Love rejoices with the truth. Love also bears all things. Literally, it means to roof over. 
So, so when you're bearing things, you know what? You're not keeping a record of every time they do something wrong. You've already decided, I love this person. So when they do something wrong, I'm not keeping a record of it. In fact, love covers that. I've, I've roofed over that. You know what? People will put up with a lot if they love you. I, I can talk about church, man. Your pastor at church, if you decide you love him and he makes a mistake because he will, it, it's not a big deal because you love him. He'll get over it. You'll get over it. If you don't love him, all it takes is one thing, man. You just, you're on it. And not just pastors and churches, folks. It's anybody. If you, if you love somebody, you'll bear with them. Love believes all things. See, it's easy to think the worst. But when you love somebody and you hear something bad about somebody, you, you still have faith in them. You're not quick to believe the worst. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Literally, confident expectation. Don't give up on people. Parents, don't give up on your children. Friends, don't give up on other friends. Hope all things. Love endures all things. This is a military term. It means when that soldier is almost out of hope, he keeps the ground that he's been given to protect even in the face of adversity, danger, he endures all things. He stays under. That's what the word means, to remain under. That's what love does. And folks, you can apply that to marriage. You can apply that to relationships, family. That's what love is. Let's close with this last and just this notion that love is forever. Last few verses, verse 8 and following. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. Love is forever. The word fail means to fall or collapse. There's some things that Paul's been teaching about that he finally tells them, you know what, these are going to be either be done away with or they will cease. The one thing you need to know is love will not cease. Not going to need prophecy in heaven. Not going to need tongues in heaven. Not going to need miracles or healing in heaven. Not even going to need the knowledge, this divine revelation in heaven. Because you're going to know as you're fully known. But one thing that will remain forever is love. Love never collapses. Love never fails. And he gives three examples. He says if there are gifts of prophecy, excuse me, if there, you have gifts of prophecy, it will cease Literally, it will, it will come to an end. If there's gifts of knowledge, it will be, uh, excuse me, gifts of prophecy will be done away with because he, he makes a distinction between prophecy and knowledge and then a difference with tongues. But he says gifts of prophecy, prediction will be done away. It will become entirely idle. Tongues will cease. Literally, they'll stop. They'll come to an end. There'll be a point where they're not needed anymore. Gifts of knowledge also will be done away. Again, it will become idle. 
And then he says, you know, I know in part now. I prophesy in part. Paul's basically saying, we're just getting a part of the picture right now. But the perfect is coming. Right now is partial. One day is perfect. The word means complete. And when that comes, the partial is going to be done away with. The stuff on earth that you Corinthians think is so important, it is temporal. It is not lasting. It's not eternal. You miss the point. Love never fails. So quit grabbing for the stuff that will fail. Because when the perfect comes, and scholars debate what he means by that, I think he means this, that one day we're going to be in the presence of Almighty God. Jesus will come back for the church. I believe that's what he means by when the perfect comes. When we're finally in the presence of God, these other things will not be necessary. In fact, the partial will be done away with. And then he gives this illustration of his childhood. He says, when I was a child, and the word most often used for child could mean toddler or adolescent or small child. That's not the word he uses here. The word he uses here is for not speaking. Literally, newborn. Paul says, you know what? When I was a newborn, I used to speak like a newborn. I used to think like a newborn. I used to reason like a newborn. When is it okay to speak and think and act like a newborn? When you're a newborn. (laughs) And I think Paul doesn't quite say it, but at several points in 1 Corinthians, I think he wants to say to these people, quit acting like babies. Go back to the nursery. <laughs> but hey, you've grown up in Jewish culture. If you were a man and finally later for women, they had this thing called a bar mitzvah. I've actually been able to be in Israel at the wailing wall or the prayer wall, the western wall, when they were doing bar mitzvahs. It's pretty incredible. In fact, you can watch it online. They have a dividing place. The women have to be over here. The men over here. They bring out the Torah. The women climb up on chairs so they can look over the wall. They throw candy over the wall at their children. But that is the day that that young man is no longer a child. And it happened in one instance at his bar mitzvah. Paul had had one of those back when his name was Saul. Paul's saying, you know what? I used to act childish. But I've become a man. I've put away the childish things. And, And folks... In churches today, there's a lot of people acting childish. Grow up. Become a man. Become a woman. Put away the things that you've played with in your infancy. And he said, in fact, now we look in a mirror dimly or darkly. This would have been a piece of polished metal. If you've ever looked at that, if you go in public schools, most of them now have gone back to polished metal so that it's not glass, it's a little safer. But it's not a real good image. And I would imagine their polishing skills weren't quite as good as the machiner we've got today. So Paul is trying to say, here's what I'm trying to describe to you. Next time you look at a mirror, notice that you don't get a real good image. Look at the person standing next to you and then look at your own face in a mirror. It's not quite the same, is it? Because we're looking in a mirror dimly. Right now we know in part. We have limited knowledge. That is the word, Greek word gnosis for knowledge. But he says, one day we will have epignosis. We'll have complete knowledge because we will know even as we are fully known. Isn't that cool? 
The God who fully knows you, loves you, and wants to spend eternity with you. So we put away the childish things. We understand the partial stuff will be done away with. And one day, we're finally going to know God like he knows us. So if that's what you look forward to, start getting ready for it now. And then he closes by saying, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. just want to ask you, do you know God? Because you can't love the way God wants you to love. In fact, you can't experience the love God wants you to experience until you know Him. Okay, so you know Him. You're here this morning and you recognize, hey, I know I'm a child of God. I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Then let me ask you something. Do you love that way? Jesus says one way that the world will know you're my disciples is by your love for one another. Would you be open today to God just showing you, hey, here's some areas we still need to work on. He's looked at the gemstone of your heart and the love that he sees there has still got some things that shouldn't be there. There's some things that should be there that aren't there yet. Would you just be that honest with God and say, God, help me because I'm struggling in some areas, whether it's patience or bearing with people. God, there's times I just rejoice when unrighteousness takes place. God, I'd rather rejoice in the truth. I want a love that's patient, a love that's kind, a love that's the kind of love that God loves with. Father, I pray for us today because I acknowledge that even as I've said, unconditional, agape love is not natural. It's not something we get out of a book. It's not something we can learn by watching a video series. Lord, it's, it's only there if you put it there because your presence is in our life. God, if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray they would run into the arms of love today to put their faith in you. God, for others here, as you've examined our life, Lord, if, if we've kind of gotten a wake-up call in a few areas, Lord, would you help us to love like you do? God, for one thing, would you help us to see other people the way you do? Not as nuisances and annoyances, but as those whom you dearly love. God, help us to be your representatives of that love in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. I invite you to stand as we close.